Welcome to Pete's Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. For this episode, we're going to talk about kidneys, more specifically, acute kidney injuries. You don't come across as many kidney injuries in pediatrics as you do in adult medicine, which is probably why the first step most people take is calling a nephrology consult. And that's fine. You should call for help when you need it, and you don't want to mess up any can't-miss issues. Still, I'm a firm believer that you should try to at least get through step one before you make the call, if for no other reason than to be nice to your consultants. And the basics will be helpful on your board exam, too. We'll start with some normal physiology, but don't worry, it's just the basics. We aren't going to get into what transporters are in which portions of the nephron or anything like that. When a baby is born, even at full term, the kidneys still aren't fully developed. All the nephrons are there, but the kidney is only functioning at about 25% of the capacity it will eventually get to. It takes a child until about their second birthday to have fully mature renal function. Neonates also have immature compensatory mechanisms. In particular, they aren't able to fully dilute or concentrate their urine. That's why you make sure to mix formula correctly and avoid giving pure water to infants before they're six months old. Because they can't dilute their urine to get rid of the extra water as effectively, they hang on to it and their serum sodium concentration starts dropping. We'll talk more about hyponatremia in another episode, but for now we're going to try to stay on topic. Fluid balance and blood pressure regulation are two of the kidneys' most important jobs, and they're tied together. It all starts with the kidneys sensing changes in how much blood is heading their way. If there's too little flow, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system is activated, which tells blood vessels to tighten up to increase blood pressure, and makes the kidneys hold on to more sodium and water. If there's too much flow, the same system is downregulated. Blood vessels relax, and the kidneys let go of more fluid. That is definitely an oversimplification, but if you can understand the main idea of kidneys retaining fluid and sodium when they're not being perfused well enough, you've already taken a big step towards understanding kidney injuries. An acute kidney injury is defined as an acute decrease in glomerular filtration rate, which is typically marked by an increase in creatinine. GFR is the standard gauge for kidney function and is measured in milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters of body surface area. We use GFR instead of creatinine by itself because the normal values for creatinine vary based on age, size, and body composition. And that 1.73 meters squared part is the average body surface area for young adults, which helps standardize the number so you can compare it across different populations. As a general rule, a GFR over 90 is considered normal for adults and older kids. There are a lot of different equations out there, but for kids, the most straightforward is the bedside Schwartz equation. It's validated for patients from 1 to 18 years old and gives you an estimated GFR by dividing the height in centimeters by the creatinine concentration, then multiplying that number by 0.413. Don't worry about memorizing that. Even if you did, most people can't do that much math in their heads, and if you're breaking out a calculator, you might as well use an app or a website with the equation built in. GFR gets tricky in kids for a few reasons. First, like we mentioned earlier, babies don't have fully functional kidneys until they're almost 2, so it's normal for them to have a GFR as low as 20 or 30 in the first month or more. The other main complication is that all the classifications for acute kidney injury are based on baseline measurements of GFR and creatinine. And since we don't usually draw chem panels on kids, that's information we don't always have. Without a baseline, you have two options. Compare the value you find to the normal GFR for the patient's age, which still gives decent information, or you can look at urine output. 
The kidney does a lot of things, but most of them come down to producing urine, which makes the amount someone is producing a pretty good indicator of renal function. The main classification system for acute kidney injuries is the RIFLE criteria, which are modified from adult studies. RIFLE is an acronym that stands for Risk, Injury, Failure, Loss, and End Stage, and we'll walk through the stages now. A patient at risk has a 25% decrease in GFR or a urine output less than 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour for 8 hours. If things get a little bit worse or last a little longer, the patient moves into the injury category where GFR is dropped by 50% or urine output is less than 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour for 12 hours. Patients with risk or injury still have a great chance for full recovery as long as you identify the problem and treat the underlying cause. Patients don't do quite as well once they hit the point of renal failure, which is defined by a 75% decrease in GFR, a GFR less than 35, urine output less than 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour for 24 hours, or 12 hours without any urine production at all. At that point, the kidney is running at 25% capacity or less, which sets you up for problems with electrolyte imbalances and fluid retention. Acute renal failure can still recover if it's treated, but the longer it goes on, the worse the outlook is. After four weeks or more of renal failure, it's considered renal loss, and if it goes on for three months or more, it fully transitions from acute kidney injury to end-stage renal disease. Kidney injuries break down into three big categories, pre-renal, intrinsic renal, and post-renal or obstructive, and it's important to know which one you're dealing with so you know how to help your patient. We won't spend too much time on post-renal injuries because they aren't very common in kids. In these cases, urine outflow is obstructed somewhere between the kidneys and the outside world, and over time the inability to clear out urine starts to affect kidney function. The obstruction could be a stone, mass, hematoma, or anything else that occupies space, and the treatment is relieving the obstruction and letting things flow freely. By far, the most common kind of kidney injury in any age group is pre-renal. The kidneys are functioning, but they aren't getting what they need to do their job. More specifically, there's a decrease in blood flow to the kidneys. Less flow means less filtration, and if it's more than the compensatory mechanisms can handle, it starts the patient down the kidney injury track. There are a ton of potential reasons for a pre-renal kidney injury, all of which come down to decreased circulating volume. Most of the time in pediatrics is from direct volume losses like vomiting and diarrhea. Odds are that most of the kids we see with gastroenteritis have some degree of renal injury, but we don't look for it because the labs generally won't change our management and we're already tracking urine output to give us some clues about how well hydrated the patient is. A couple of other less common causes are decreased cardiac output like you might see in a patient with heart failure or patients with any type of shock. The last category of AKI is intrinsic renal injury. In this case, there's actual damage to the kidney itself. Intrinsic renal damage also covers glomerulonephritis, microangiopathic conditions like thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura and hemolytic uremic syndrome, and nephrotic syndromes, all of which cause the kidney to lose some of its functional capacity. The most common way the kidney gets damaged is actually from a prolonged pre-renal injury. If the kidney goes long enough without getting enough blood flow, it turns into acute tubular necrosis. The watershed areas of the kidney the ones that are most vulnerable to drops in perfusion, start to necrose and tubular cells die. That cellular debris can build up in the tubules, 
and those dead cells are actually what makes up the muddy brown casts you see in exam questions. One other type of intrinsic renal injury to know about for board exams, acute interstitial nephritis. The easiest way to think about acute interstitial nephritis is as an allergic reaction, typically to a medication, that causes kidney damage. It can be hard to pick up on when it first happens because the rise in creatinine can take weeks after the first exposure to a medication, so we usually only notice the second time the offending agent comes in when the symptoms only take a few days to develop. There's a classic triad of fever, eosinophilia, and rash, and, like most classic constellations of symptoms, most patients don't have it. Still, any one of those three, plus a rise in creatinine in a patient with a recent medication change, should make you think about interstitial nephritis. The treatment for this one is simple, just stop the offending medication and things should get back to normal without needing any other interventions. Now that we know more about what we're looking for, we can get to how to find it. As always, you need to start with a good solid history and physical exam. The event that causes the injury almost always happens well before you see a rise in creatinine. It might be a couple of days in the case of a pre-renal injury, or even weeks before in a patient with post-strep glomerulonephritis, but either way, the history is important. On your exam, pay close attention to signs of volume status like swelling and how strong the pulses are. You should also look for rashes, swollen joints, and periorbital edema to tip you into potential underlying causes. If your history and exam are convincing, usually this is going to be for a pretty obvious pre-renal AKI, like a kid with vomiting who hasn't been eating or drinking. You might be able to skip labs altogether. If you still need some more information, a basic chemistry panel, urinalysis, urine osmolality, and urine sodium and creatinine are going to be most helpful. The chemistry panel will let you know if there are any additional electrolyte abnormalities to be worried about, and you can use the serum sodium and creatinine along with the urine sodium and creatinine to calculate the fractional excretion of sodium, which you usually hear people refer to as FENA, F-E-N-A. The FENA is a measurement of what percentage of sodium filtered by the kidneys ends up being excreted in the urine. Don't worry about memorizing the formula. I don't remember it showing up on boards, and it's easy to find a calculator or an app online when you're treating real patients. Sodium passes freely through the glomerulus, but as it moves through the tubules, the vast majority is reabsorbed back into the bloodstream. That's important because water usually follows sodium. If more sodium is reabsorbed, more fluid moves back into circulation along with it. For someone whose kidneys are fully functioning, so no neonates or chronic kidney disease patients, a normal fena is somewhere around 1-2%, to meaning 98-99% to of the sodium is reabsorbed. In a pre-renal AKI, the problem is volume depletion, so the kidney is going to try to hang on to more fluid, which means reabsorbing more sodium, so the fena will be less than 1%. On the other hand, if the kidney itself is damaged, like in an intrinsic renal injury, it won't be able to absorb sodium as well as if it were fully healthy, and the fena will be higher, usually over 2%. Urinalysis and urinosmolality are slightly simpler ways to find out the same information. Again, in a pre-renal kidney injury, the body is trying to retain fluid, so the urine is going to be as concentrated as possible. The urinalysis will come back with a specific gravity over 1.02, and the urinosmolality will probably be 500 or higher. Damaged kidneys can't concentrate like they normally would, so the specific gravity will be less than 1.01, and the osmolality will be under 350. All of this comes down to figuring out how well the kidneys are functioning. Remember, in a pre-renal injury, the kidneys are functional, 
they just aren't getting enough flow to get the job done. So they hang on to fluid and sodium, making concentrated urine with a low fractional excretion of sodium. Damaged kidneys don't work as well, so they spill sodium in water and produce dilute urine with a high fena. After all the diagnostic workup, we have to get to managing our patient's poor damaged kidneys. The best way to manage an AKI is to prevent it from happening in the first place. Identify the patients who are at risk, whether in the hospital or in the community, and try to minimize those risks, which in pediatrics usually means maintaining hydration and limiting problem medications. There are a few models out there for in-hospital monitoring. The one that I came across the most was started at Cincinnati Children's Hospital in 2011 and is called Nephrotoxic Injury Negated by Just-In-Time Action. They decided to ignore the words in time when they made their acronym, so the program is called NINJA for short, which is probably a factor in why it's so popular in children's hospitals. The idea behind the NINJA program is to rapidly identify at-risk patients and remove those risks as soon as possible. A pharmacist rounding with the team gets a daily report of patients who are getting three or more nephrotoxic medications or who have been on three consecutive days of aminoglycoside treatment and passes that information to the medical team. All the members of the team use the data to optimize their management and monitoring, deciding who needs labs, how often, and whether or not to change medications. Cincinnati Children's had a 38% decrease in nephrotoxic medication exposure and a 64% decrease in acute kidney injuries without any increase in persistent infections or other negative outcomes, and those results are why the program is spread to more than 15 other hospitals around the country. Still, we can't prevent all the problems. Even the ninjas at Cincinnati still had a third of their acute kidney injuries to deal with, so you need to know what the next steps are in treatment. First of all, you should renally dose all medications to avoid making things worse. A lot of the rest comes down to what the underlying cause is, which we'll get to in some later episodes about glomerulonephritis, nephrotic syndrome, and hematuria. Even so, you're almost never wrong to give fluids a try, especially for a patient with low urine output or blood pressure. Restoring intravascular volume will help give circulatory support and provide the kidneys with the blood flow they need. If your patient still isn't making much urine after their volume repleted, it's a sign of intrinsic renal damage and you should be more careful with fluids to avoid overloading them. You should also avoid giving fluids that contain potassium or phosphate to patients who aren't producing as much urine as they should to keep from causing an electrolyte problem. That brings us to the other important part of managing kidney injuries, electrolyte monitoring. We worry most about acidosis, elevated phosphate, and most of all, elevated potassium. Hyperkalemia is the most life-threatening complication of an acute kidney injury because of its potential to cause arrhythmias. You might remember from physiology class the progression from peaked T waves to widened QRS complexes to sine wave rhythm. If the patient's potassium is higher than 6, you should check an EKG to look for any abnormalities. If there are no changes on the EKG and the potassium is still less than 6.5 with decent urine output, you can give a K-exalate or saline along with a dose of furosemide, either of which will help get the potassium out of the body. If there are EKG changes or the potassium is higher than 7, or if the potassium is going up rapidly, you need to look at some short-term solutions. Giving a dose of IV calcium gluconate will help stabilize the cardiac cell membranes and can prevent arrhythmia from developing or worsening. Giving insulin along with glucose, insulin alone would just add hypoglycemia to your list of problems, or giving a dose of a beta agonist like albuterol can help drive potassium into the cells and out of the bloodstream. Still, none of those treatments lower the overall potassium in the body, 
So you'll need to go back to caexalate, loop diuretics, or in the worst case, renal replacement therapy. Renal replacement therapy is what everyone else calls dialysis, and it's the last resort for treating damaged kidneys. You can remember the indications for dialysis with the vowels A-E-I-O-U. A is for acidosis, although we can usually treat the underlying cause and get by without dialysis. E is electrolyte abnormalities, like we just talked about. I stands for intoxicants or ingestions, which is another uncommon indication, but still something dialysis can help with. O is volume overload, usually at least 10-20% to excess fluid in a patient who isn't making enough urine, and U is uremia. Uremia is the syndrome that develops when the body accumulates urea, amino acids, and all the other things the kidney is supposed to eliminate. The main symptoms are weakness, poor appetite, nausea, vomiting, tremors, and altered mental status, but hopefully after listening to this episode, you'll take care of your patient's AKI long before they get to that point. That's all for acute kidney injuries. For take-home points, remember that while elevated serum creatinine is the most common indicator of an acute kidney injury, a drop in urine output is a useful sign too, especially in kids. Pre-renal injuries due to volume loss are most common, but be sure to get a thorough history and physical exam to look for clues that something else is going on. Lab workup comes down to determining if the kidneys are still trying to do their job, retaining sodium, and making urine that's as concentrated as it needs to be. Make sure your patients have all the intravascular volume they need and keep a close eye on electrolytes, especially potassium. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please give us a rating at Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever else you find your podcasts. You can send any comments or suggestions for future episodes to pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Pedsoup.